the latest headlines. He's so much better as that number two option. The insightful interviews. Michael Scotto, basketball insiders. I don't think there's an Italian sit-down between LeBron and Kyrie. The hottest takes. Teams that do run the system that Colin thrives in have starting quarterbacks. Can all be found on Press, Press Row. Row. Broadcasting is part of the Brew Sports Network. Here's your host. You can only envy being that good ever in your life. Christian Heimel. As those of you who have listened to the show for a while know, I have a really big affinity or hatred or love-hate relationship with the social media world and the society that we live in today. I think it has done two things to us. Number one, I think it has made us overly sensitive, while at the same time somehow making us desensitized to actual real issues. The issue that I have with sports and social media is the fact that all it is is hot takes, and that's what draws people, and that's where the problems come, is these trolls that they have so affectionately been named become huge, massive parts of our lives just because they say something that bothers somebody, and then we get that person's reaction, and then we get the reaction to their reaction, and it turns into this whole big non-story when there are actual issues that go on that we really seriously need to talk about. I'm Christian Heimel. Welcome on Press Row. So happy to have you all along with us broadcasting as part of the Brew Sports Network. You can find us on iTunes as well as Spreaker.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends about us and invite them to be a part of the show. You can always ask your questions each week on Twitter at Chris Heimel, at Brew Sportsnet as well. You can also find us on Facebook, Brew Sports, and Big Play Live. Uh, the biggest thing that I want to talk about today, and, and there are going to be two of them, David Price and Colin Kaepernick. And we're going to touch on both of those with some very great people. Chris Smith, Red Sox beat reporter of MassLive.com, is going to join us in just a couple minutes to discuss David Price, as well as the MLB trade deadline, which went through, and I'll touch on that a little bit later on after we talk with Chris. And then Ryan Mayer of CBS Sports will join us to touch on Colin Kaepernick, uh, the Jamal Adams story that is continuing to grow in New York, uh, the Jets rookie safety, and his comments earlier this week about CTE, as well as some other news and notes in the NFL. But let's touch on David Price real quick. And this is a story that is continuously evolving, and we've heard so much more about it. And Chris Smith on MassLive.com has a great article about David's uh, past, which is what we're going to talk to him about. Because this is my biggest question. When the whole thing about Dennis Eckersley came up and what he said, my question was, well, Price, this is his fourth team. How has he been in Toronto? How was he in Detroit? And what was he like in Tampa Bay, where he spent the first seven years of his career? Uh, with the media members and with the criticism that he probably got. Uh, and, and Chris has a full breakdown on all that. The teammates love him. Media members, for the most part, love him. But he is very thin-skinned, and that is the problem in social media. We become overly sensitive to what people say about us on social media or what people say in general, as opposed to actually just ignoring it and going on with your lives. You are the only, You, you are the owner of your domain. What other people say about you can't affect you. And while I don't want to turn this into a self-help or I don't want to get on a pedestal and start preaching and have people come at me because what do I know? Here's what I know. I know that most people on Twitter, when they go after celebrities, are doing it simply to get a reaction out of people. That is all they are doing. They have no backing behind it. They have no expertise behind it. They just want to see if they can get a reaction out of somebody. Where David Price is a little different is the fact that the criticism that he is taking is coming from a Hall of Fame pitcher who has more than 20 years' experience in the position you play. Not just the game you play, the position that you play. And you're upset that he criticized you for not covering first base. And you call him out in front of the entire team on the team plane. And you make this big deal about it. And it becomes public. You look terrible. You look absolutely terrible as a person, as a teammate, as an influence. You signed a $217 million contract in Boston a couple of years ago. What are you going to do? You've got five years left on that deal after this season. You're going to have to stay and get used to this. So the fact that Price isn't going to apologize, the fact that he hasn't been forced to apologize, and if he has, he's clearly ignored that, which is an even worse statement. The fact that no other member of the Red Sox team, the manager, Dustin Pedroia, Craig Kimbrell, Chris Sale, uh, Xander Bogarts, Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley, any, nobody else has come out and said it was wrong of David. We respect Denner's Eckersley. He's a legend. He's a Hall of Famer for the Red Sox. Nobody has said that is a little 
embarrassing. As a kid who grew up loving the Red Sox, loving them, this, is, this bothers me tremendously. It really does. The MLB trade deadline has come and gone. Uh, we'll touch on that in just a little bit, all the deals that were made. But first, I want to welcome in Chris Smith of MassLive.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Smitty on MLB. And Chris, before we get to the whole David Price saga that I just touched on a little bit, Tuesday night, an absolutely crazy game at Fenway between the Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. Have you ever seen anything like that? No. I mean, I mean, you know, in a regular season game, it was, it was a pretty unbelievable regular season game for all that went on. I mean, just the amount of really good pitchers out there. I mean, you got Carlos, Carlos Carrasco and Chris Sale going, you know, going at it, and you know, Cody, Cody Allen, um, Craig Kimbrell. No one pitched well, <laughs> so uh, you know. And then you had the awesome catch by Austin Jackson. Um, you know, just I mean, just there was three lead changes in the, in the last you know two or three innings. I mean, it was it was an awesome game. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it was incredible. And then, you know, of of all people to hit a to hit a walk off home run, Christian Vasquez is fourth home run of his career. You know, he's just not a power hitter, and he got, he actually hit one off uh, Dylan Betances last year, a big home run, and with two outs in the seventh inning, uh, go ahead home run. So he's actually home runs has been <laughs> significant. Uh, you know, so he hits them when they they're meaningful. But uh, he doesn't hit. He doesn't hit many, but they're meaningful. But yeah, I mean that was a crazy game. Uh, it was fun to be there. Um, it was a good win for the Red Sox, obviously. And I think the probably the most bizarre play, at least the play that won the game, in my opinion, was uh, right before Christian Vasquez's home run. You mentioned all the blown leads by the bullpen. You mentioned uh, obviously Vasquez's homer, but Mitch Moreland and you had the quote in your gamer. Uh, was the best strikeout of my career so far uh, on a drop third strike where he advances to first. Jan Gomes doesn't throw down. I thought if he threw down, he would have had him, but it extends the inning, extends the game. Uh, and, and then, of course, Vasquez with a walk-off. Yeah, I was surprised he didn't throw down and because Mitch Mullen is just so slow. And it looked like, you know, Mitch Mullen hesitated at first, and I didn't know... If he had, if he didn't see the pass ball, or if he didn't really know what was going on, and then he said after the game that he was waiting for the umpire's call on whether it was strike or check swing or whatever. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, at that point, you probably should just run no matter what. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I would have thought that he would have ran my immediate, uh, that he would have thrown out my immediate reaction that he didn't was, well, if he chucks it in a right field, they're going to tie the game. The Red Sox are probably going to tie the game there. So, um, or they're going to, have, you know, set up a second or third situation. So, you know, he's just being cautious and, you know, he thinks his closer, Cody Allen, has good enough stuff to get out of it uh, with the number nine hitter coming up. I mean, I don't know if that all that thought process comes into your mind, <laughs> you know, when you're, you know, uh, you know, it's a second decision, but that, that might have been the reason he didn't do it. He's Chris Smith, MassLive.com, Red Sox beat reporter, joining us on Press Row. And then uh, you know, the other part about Tuesday night, it's Legends Night. Uh, Dennis Eckersley is there, and, and hopefully the wins kind of take away from the turmoil that has been Eckersley and uh, David Price saga. Uh, have you heard anything more on this whole thing, whether it be from Price, from the Red Sox, from Eckersley, about what's happened between these two? Yeah, Eckersley, you know, said that he doesn't he doesn't want to meet with uh, with Price. He, he told Dan Shaughnessy he like, well, that yesterday. Dan Shaughnessy obviously has been all over the story, um, and so I don't blame Eckersley. Listen, you know, I mean, you know, it's very um, hypocritical the way that Price has gone about this. He says, you know, show your face in the clubhouse to Eckersley. Well, what? So Eckersley can go, you know one man against 25, we saw what happened with, uh, you know, what happened in New York with, um, with Evan Drellick, the, the writer for CSN, and then, you know, Steve Buckley and, and MLB.com's Ian Brown, where Price blew up on all three of them, it's, you know, especially Evan, for something that he didn't like. He didn't like some tweets that Evan sent out during the game, and they weren't, you know, they weren't critical tweets. Evan was just you know, sending out a quote from Dan Shaughnessy's story. He took a screenshot of Dan Shaughnessy's story 
uh, with the quote that Price doesn't want to talk to the media anymore. And he also uh, sent out a, a, a text, I mean, a, um, a, a tweet about the CBA and what it says about players talking. So, you know, basically, you know, Price blew up on him when he came to the clubhouse. So, so evidence who comes to the clubhouse every day shows accountability and Price blows up on him. Um, Eckersley doesn't come to the clubhouse and he gets blown up on. So why why should Eckersley come to the clubhouse? Uh, you know, he's a Hall of Fame pitcher. You know, show show your face. Yeah, you know, Price has no really just has no respect in that comment. And you know, Eckersley's a Hall of Fame pitcher. He's gone through a ton in his career. You know, why should he care what what Price says at this point? The only reason that Price is going to talk to him anyway was because all this came out of the details about what happened. Price probably had no intention. He had the opportunity to talk to him. They, you know, the, the team plane flew to, uh, you know, Texas and then to Tampa. He saw Eckersley after that, even though they say he didn't. Uh, you know, and, and he could have just set up – he could have just asked Kevin Gregg, the the PR guy, the media relations guy, to set up, an, you know, to set up a little meeting with Eckersley if he really meant it. So, you know – um, you know, this this situation is just crazy and um, you know, obviously Price hasn't done himself any favors. You know, one of my biggest questions uh, when this whole thing came out was about Price's history in Toronto, in Detroit, in Tampa Bay. Uh, and one of your latest articles actually on MassLive.com details that. What have you learned talking with ex-teammates and those who have covered him over the length of his career about Price's interactions with the media? So it's funny, like, so I had, um, when the Red Sox played, I didn't include this in the article because I tried to get some, I remember it happening, but I tried to get some confirmation that it happened and really, you know, couldn't get the exact confirmation that it happened. But two years ago, I remember hearing that Price went over, made a special trip out of his way to go talk to the Tampa Bay media when the Red Sox, when the Rays played at JetBlue Park spring training game right after Price signed, you know, this his first year Price was in Boston. So he's, you know, he's kept up, a, as, I, as I quoted somebody um, in the story, a media member, he has kept up a relationship with the Rays beat reporters. He's always been known, though, as a, as a good teammate and, you know, and that goes to the fact that, you know, he he buys I mean, he buys people's stuff. I'm not saying that he isn't a good teammate, you know, and I'm sure he is in in the respect that he's a fun guy and stuff like that. But, you know, he's always buying stuff for his his uh his teammates. He even bought like Air Jordans for the you know, whole thing of Air Jordans for the Red Sox players last year. So he does type of things like that. Uh, he bought all these bathrobes for the, the Toronto Blue Jays. So, you know, players like that, they think that that's cool. It rallies the team around and around each other, and they're all wearing these, you know, blue bathrobes uh, with their with their names and numbers on the back. And, you know, he does things like that. You know, he bought um, scooters in, in Toronto for, for like 11 or 12 players, and they all rode them around together. Yeah, that, that's cool. I, I agree with that. That's nice and everything. And so I've always known Price. When, when he was in Tampa Bay, he had the reputation of being the type of guy that, you know, sometimes the pitchers hang out with the pitchers and the position players hang out with the position players. He had the reputation of kind of hanging out with everybody, and bringing a clubhouse together. Um, and so he, you know, so he buys people's stuff, he does that type of stuff, he, he can be a good teammate. But in this situation where he came to Boston, he has shown sensitivity in certain in certain times that he has got it. Now, in, in Tampa Bay, you're not going to, and that's where he spent most of his career, you know, he, he he's not going to get a lot of heat because first of all, he pitched well his whole time in Tampa Bay and there's few media members in that market and no one was really critical. I mean, the one time he was really criticized was in the postseason in 2013 when he gave up two home runs to, to David Price and Dirk Hayhurst and Todd Bertucci, uh, Tom Bertucci, sorry. Um, 
they they criticized him on the broadcast. He heard about it and he was tweeting out about them that they were nerds, uh, you know, at twelve o'clock or one o'clock in the morning after his start. So we knew that he was sensitive. We seen it. We saw it on Twitter. We knew he was sensitive coming in. And if you have a sensitive clubhouse, you can buy people stuff. You can be there. You can be a good teammate and all that. But is he really a good teammate in this situation? Because if there's some sensitive players to begin with, and he and he's the leader type, he's an alpha type. Uh, and they're rallying around, and he's not liking Boston, and he's pitting the media against the, you know, the, the players against the media, you know, and, and he's showing everybody else that, you know, this is that, that, that you know, that, that this criticalness is not good, and that X shouldn't be, you know, criticizing them on the TV and stuff on the broadcast. It's just not a good situation. His leadership hasn't rubbed off in a good way here. Is ownership to blame at all for any of this, or, or should anybody from higher up, John Farrell or the ownership, be forcing a mea culpa between these two? Uh, at this point, I, I don't think you can. But listen, I've heard that John Farrell and Dave Dombrowski have both talked to Price, and it's really gone on. You know, he, he has not. He he really hasn't listened to them. I mean, he's a thirty-one million dollar pitcher. He's guaranteed two hundred and seventeen million dollars. He's thirty-one years old. He doesn't have to listen to anybody if he doesn't want to listen to anybody, and that's that's too bad, you know. At this, now, I mean, do you think John Henry, the owner, really wants to, you know, get involved and and have to, you know, talk to this guy? I, I mean, at this point, I mean, you know, what? Why does he want to have to interject? I mean, I just, I see, you know, from what I've heard, they've tried to to, you know, make pleas to Price. You know, they they talked to Price after the Evandrelic situation and told them, you know, I don't know exactly what they told them, but I'm, I'm sure they said that, that that wasn't acceptable. That's not how they do things to blow up in front of, to blow up a media member and to yell at him and you know say the f word, uh, you know, in front of everybody and yada yada yada. But then he does what he does to X within a, you know, a couple of weeks after. So there's definitely concern, but, you know, I mean, they stepped in, Dabrowski stepped in, tried to talk to him. No one's really got to him. Uh, you know, Pedroia, I guess, talked to him, but I don't, we don't really know if Pedroia was involved in the clapping, even though he said he wasn't. And, you know, whether Pedroia even talked to him after this whole Dan Shaughnessy thing came out or before it came out. So, you know, I mean, it's a crazy situation. And, you know, I, I just, it's weird. Like, no one's going to get through him because I think this is this is the case in general. He doesn't like Boston. He doesn't like, you know, he thinks that the media has been too critical. He doesn't like how the fans have attacked him probably on Twitter. He shut it down on Twitter pretty much. He hasn't tweeted since June, and he really hadn't tweeted much earlier this year. And, you know, he went at it with fans on Twitter throughout the off season, And, you know, that's something that he likes to do is social media. And so, you know, and he had told me in Toronto that, you know, he was done with the, you know, he was done with the people on Twitter. He just seems done with fans. He just seems like the only ones that he's not done with right now are his teammates. Chris Smith, MassLive.com, Red Sox beat reporter joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Smitty on MLB. And one last thing on this price issue before we touch on actual baseball. Uh, part of me wonders if this is just Boston and the microscope that Boston baseball is uh, because we've seen players like Carl Crawford and Pablo Sandoval struggle in Boston. We've seen guys like Kenny Rogers and, and Randy Johnson struggle in New York. And other players, meanwhile, thrive under that sort of pressure. Is this just kind of what it's like being a baseball player in Boston? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a critical place. You know, you're, you've got the two radio stations now that are competing against each other, but you've also got CSNNE where they're doing, like, you know, three hours of talk, you know, pretty much like talk radio every night, you know, with their Boston sports tonight. So there's constant opinions being thrown around. And you know what? People want to hear opinions. When you look at the ESPN layoff, 
a lot of them were reporters. None of the people that could throw out, you know, that threw out opinions, you know, got laid off. You know, that's what people want to hear nowadays is opinions. And, you know, uh, that's what the, the, the players don't exactly like, the ones that, that come to Boston that don't don't like it here. And the ones that, that thrive here or, or at least like it here, you know, or the ones that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying Mitch Moreland's thrived here. He hasn't hit well in the last month. Maybe the toe injury is, is a factor in him. But he, he likes it here. And that's because, you know, earlier this year I talked to him and I said to him, I go, have you heard the nickname uh, Mitchie Two Bags or Mitchie Four Bags at that point? It was two of them were being thrown around. And he said to me, he was like, no. And I was like, yeah, it's all on uh, – Twitter, everybody's calling you that. He goes, I don't know about any of those blog things. You know, he, he doesn't read it. Another one is Pomerantz. I mean, he's been killed in terms of when he was pitching bad and, you know, that whole trade situation where, you know, the whole medicals came down. He doesn't he doesn't really read it. If he does, he doesn't care. Uh, because, you know, I was talking to him in uh, – it was in Texas, and I was like, you know, I I was wrong. I was like, I wrote a few weeks back that you should have you should have been in the bullpen or whatever, and um, you know, you would help the bullpen out more, and you weren't giving the Red Sox innings in the starting rotation, and then you turned around. I wrote that like after his Oakland start or something like that, and he was like, oh, whatever, you know, yada yada yada. If that was Price, he probably would have seen the story already, and, and he would have probably been mad about it or whatever or kept it in the back of his mind. So, you know, I don't really know what Price's problem is because there wasn't much, you know, there weren't too many critical stories of him last year. I wrote a couple of critical columns. I wrote one after his Dodgers start last year that if the Red Sox missed the playoffs, that he'd be a, re, a big reason why or he'd be the main reason why. I wrote another one earlier in the year after his, you know, first seven games, uh, first seven starts in which he, you know, wasn't good at all. But he didn't really get too many critical columns on him. Um, you know, I think he listens to the radio. Uh, he listens to, you know, that, that, I mean, they're entertainment. They're, you know, they're not, and you can't listen to that stuff. If you're going to, if you're, if you're not going to laugh that stuff off, if you're not going to laugh off on Twitter, a guy saying that he's going to dress up, and this is one comment that came into him on Twitter during the off season. Somebody said that he was going to dress up as a playoff start because that would scare, you know, that would scare the hell out of David Price on Halloween. Um, if you're not, if you're not just going to laugh that off, then don't look at it. Shut your notifications off and don't let it bug you. That, uh, but he doesn't do that. He looks at everything. And that's always been David Price, especially here in Boston, where he's been, you know, it's been wicked critical of him. Well, wicked critical over of him over the past, you know, since since all this really started with Evan, <laughs> you know, because he really didn't get it too much before that. I feel. Well, let's just hope this whole Price Eckersley thing gets put to bed, and and that the team and the fans and the media can can focus on what's happening on the field. Speaking of that, uh, the Red Sox, it felt as though they needed to make a big acquisition at the trade deadline. They go out, and the biggest one is Addison Reed on Monday. Uh, Eduardo Nunez the week before. Was that enough? Those two moves enough for the Red Sox to compete in this division, especially considering what the Yankees did at the trade deadline and getting all those big names? Yeah, no, you know, obviously Nunez looks like. Fenway Park is is a it's his place to hit. I mean, he's been unbelievable here. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think a big key down the stretch will be Devers. He he showed, um, you know, obviously that he's got power and they need power. I'm not saying that they're gonna the season's gonna ride on a 20 year old, but he actually is more important, I think, than people thought two weeks ago when he came up or last week when he came up and he was batting, you know, ninth in the order. Um, But yeah, I mean, Addison Reed, I felt like the most important thing at the trade deadline was that they added another reliever. We don't know if Carson Smith is going to come back this year. And if he does come back, whether he's even going to pitch well. And, you know, obviously the Tyler Thornburg situation, that was a big loss 
um, that he couldn't pitch this year. So I felt like th- their offense is, is second tier anyway, and I felt like, you know, they if they're going to win it, they're going to have to win it on the postseason. The Giants have done that before with a, a second-rate offense. And they're not going to improve their offense. And, you know, the big slugger that can really change this offense, like a David Ortiz, isn't out there at the trade deadline. They had to make that move this past offseason by, you know, signing somebody like Edwin Encarnacion. And so they weren't going to be able to sign that or trade for that big hitter at the deadline, I felt. So I felt like the best move was to go out and get a setup, man, and, you know, Reed is, has the ability versus righties and lefties, something that, you know, they really needed. They really need somebody that's steady in that eighth inning. Now, if Carson Smith comes back too, the bullpen could be really elite in the postseason. We'll see. I think that, you know, I, I would have rather the Red Sox done what they did instead of giving up big prospects uh, for, for, you know, a power hitter. I I am more under the impression that, like, you know, keep Devers, you know, because if you were going to give up, you know, big prospects for a power hitter, Devers would have had to have been included. You know, Chavis, Michael Chavis, who I'm high on, um, you know, and, and Jason Groom. So keep your prospects, find somebody in the offseason as a power hitter, see what you can do the rest of this year. That's, that's basically, I think they took the best route. Did the Yankees win the trade deadline with the guys that they picked up? We'll see. I mean, you know, we don't we don't know how Sonny Gray will pitch, you know, in, in New York. We, he hasn't been, you know, Sonny Gray really. I mean, he had a five-year last year, and I know he's, he's been better this year. He started out slow, and he's been really good of late. But, you know, we'll see how he pitches. But, yeah, I mean, obviously they stacked their bullpen. Uh, with you know, with that trade with the White Sox, so their bullpen's really good. And if Sonny Gray comes in and you know helps that rotation out, they they are the favorites right now. As Dave Jimbrowski said, you know, my, uh, Brian Cashman had said that the Red Sox were the Golden State Warriors of you know MLB's version of the Golden State Warriors after they traded for or they signed uh, Chris Sale in the off season at the winter meetings. Well. You know, Dombrowski returned the favor the other day and said the Yankees are now the Golden State Warriors. I think that they have the ability to be the best team in the American League now. The Cleveland Indians, still the mirror, are right up there too. Um, I don't know about the Houston Astros because they did so little, uh, you know, at the trade deadline, and I don't know if they have exactly a team that can win in the postseason as opposed to really dominating in the regular season. So, um, yeah, the Yankees had the best trade deadline um, acquisitions, but we'll see how they pan out in the end. Uh, you know, I, I like their team. I mean, they have power. They have, you know, they have a good offense now. They have a good, they have a, a, an elite bullpen. But, you know, the games have to be played. Everybody thought the Red Sox were the Golden State Warriors you know, entering the season and, you know, they, they didn't play well for large portions or good portions of the year. I mean, they, they went in the all-star break with a four or three and a half game lead or whatever, but you know, you got to win on the field. So we'll see. Chris Smith, Red Sox beat reporter, MassLive.com. Chris, thanks a lot for the time and enjoy the rest of the season. All right. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome stuff there from Chris Smith, uh, MassLive.com. Again, go read his latest article uh, or one of his latest ones, MassLive.com, about David Price, his history. Because, again, that was my biggest question about this. Boston is such a microscope, especially on the baseball team. At Fort Yawkey Way, there is such a microscope and such a spotlight on anybody who plays there that it can really change you changes who you are. It changes how you interact with people. It changes what you do. And to say that he doesn't like Boston, he doesn't like the fans. He doesn't like the media members. He doesn't like the pressure that is being put on from December all the way through. It doesn't stop in Boston. It doesn't. We've seen players, all-star players, careers crumble in Boston. Carl Crawford, Pablo Sandoval, most recently, guys who just can't handle the pressure of playing in Boston. 
You go back a couple of years in New York, Kenny Rogers, I mentioned it, Randy Johnson, those guys who struggle. They struggled in those big markets. They thrive in Arizona, in Detroit, in Tampa Bay, in San Francisco, where it's not as big a, 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 of a microscope. But in Boston, that's it. No matter how many Super Bowls Tom Brady wins, no matter how many championships the Celtics or the Bruins bring home, the Red Sox are king in Boston. That's how it always has been. It's how it always will be. That's how passionate the fan base is. That's how critical the media is. And if you can't handle that, don't sign a deal to play there. Or don't agree to a trade there. It's just that simple. From an MLB trade deadline standpoint, uh, I, I think the Yankees 100% ran away with the MLB trade deadline. Uh, easy winners. I thought the, the White Sox deal that they made to get not only Todd Frazier and steal him from the Red Sox, who they were really looking at, but to get David Robertson back, that was huge for their bullpen because now you've got probably the best bullpen in the game right there uh, in New York with Batances, Robertson, and now Chapman, if he can get his arm figured out. Um, but Frazier can play third base. He can play first. He can DH if you really need him to. I think the Yankees 100% won, especially when you add Jaime Garcia and Sonny Gray to the rotation with Sabathia and Tanaka uh, and Severino. I think that's a great rotation now for the Yankees. I think they are the favorites in the American League East. Um, I personally did not like the Eduardo Nunez. I mentioned this last week. I didn't like the Eduardo Nunez trade for the Red Sox, but he has uh, made me eat my words. I think it's great, especially now with Pedroia on the the DL. He can play second base all over that infield, which is great. And Addison Reed, yeah, Tuesday night he gave up a home run, but you you expect him to kind of settle down throughout the rest of the year. He's been a setup guy before. Um, He knows how to pitch in those type of situations. I think he'll be great. Uh, It certainly helps the Red Sox a little bit, just not tremendously enough. And then you look at some of the other big names that were on the move a little bit. I like what the Dodgers did. They didn't have to go and get you Darvish or, or a big name starter. They didn't have to go get anybody really, but they did. Um, I think the Astros made enough moves where they can be competitive in the postseason. Cause for Houston right now, it's not about the division. They've already got that one. Um, the nationals did what they had to uh, with the bullpen. And then the, the two teams that I love what they, I absolutely love what these two teams did the Rays and the Rockies, because these are teams that if you're not paying attention, they're going to beat you in the postseason because they are that close to the wild card. The Rockies are playing in a division where the Dodgers are running away with it and they won't win the division, but they are battling tooth and nail with the Cubs, Brewers, um, and the Diamondbacks for that wild card spot. And it is a lot of fun to watch. And then the Rays are doing the same thing. The Rays are trying to make sure that they've got a playoff spot in a wild card. And they went out and they made some moves that are going to help them uh, actually maybe get there. So I love what that happened. The MLB trade deadline is always fun, especially the day of the trade deadline is always pretty impressive. You're on Press Row. I'm Christian Imel here, broadcasting part of the Bruce Sports Network. We are on iTunes as well as on Spreaker.com. Please subscribe, rate, review. Tell your friends all about it and join the conversation. We've had a lot of people do that uh, each week. We take some of your fan questions and a couple of them here uh, that we want to touch on today. Uh, As always, we have some great people who make some tremendous questions and ask a couple of them. Let's get to uh, Brandon real quick, uh, one of our regulars. A couple of different ones. John Jones, legit enough for Brock Lesnar. I think the question really is, is Lesnar legit enough for John Jones? And this, of course, stems after the whole right before the Daniel Cormier-John Jones fight this past weekend at UFC 214 for the light heavyweight title, someone made a comment, asked Lesnar uh, about a super fight with John Jones, and Lesnar said, yeah, sure, 100%. And then after Jones won, he said verbatim, Brock, if you want to know what it's like to lose to a guy 40 pounds lighter than you, meet me in the octagon, which is great. So I think the question is more, is Lesnar legit enough for John Jones? Because all the out of the octagon stuff, all the other issues away from the sport. John Jones is one of the greatest talents the UFC has ever seen. And if he can stay out of trouble and stay fighting, he may go down as the greatest of all time. And I know that's a long way away, but he is LeBron James to Anderson Silva's Michael Jordan. He, he is. And that's just my opinion. And Lesnar, meanwhile, we know the health issues. I don't know if the WWE will let him back into the ring. I don't know if Dana White wants him back in the ring, uh, in the octagon, I should say. But I think the question is more so: Is Lesnar legit enough for John Jones? Because I do think, I think Jones uh, is just one of the best talents in the sport, and would be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and then Brandon asks another question here: After Lavar Ball's latest antics, is he a liability for Lonzo? 
I don't think he's a liability for Lonzo. Lonzo's already in the NBA. He's signed. He's playing for the Lakers. He's going to be their starting point guard. He's going to have a very good NBA career. Where he is a liability is for his other two sons. And LaMelo Ball, uh, who is playing uh, and going to UCLA, the other one uh, who I can't remember his name uh, off the top of my head, um, they're apparently going to UCLA just like Lonzo did, and they're playing for the big baller brand uh, you know, travel team. And if you haven't f- figured it out, LeVar Ball is just a terrible person in my opinion. Um, I don't know how he raises his kids. I don't know what he does, but he is a very bad representative of a lot of for a lot of people. And the recent thing of because he got a technical in an AAU game uh, from a female referee and then threatened to pull his team off the court if she wasn't replaced. That at the very basis is misogynistic because. He's saying that a woman, he won't coach. He won't let kids play basketball because a woman is doing her job. That at the ve- or because he disagreed with her doing her job. That at the very basis is misogynistic. And my question isn't, how does Lonzo feel about it? My question is, how do the parents of the other kids on the team feel about it? Because that, that is showing your kid that it is okay to ban someone from your area because you don't agree with them. And you can make the comparisons to LeVar Ball to our current president that you don't agree with him, you're gone. but Or you're going to complain and whine about it until they're gone. But it's not fair to the other kids. Parent your own kids however you want. I have no place to tell you how to parent your kids. I know how I was raised. I know how I, how I plan to raise my kids one day. But I have no place to tell you how to raise your kids. But the other players on that team, these children, how did their parents feel that this is the example they're looking up to in a coach? That's embarrassing. Beyond embarrassing. And I 100% love, by the way, what Michael Jordan said. I shouldn't say 100%. I like 80% love it because I really wish he wouldn't have just said anything. Somebody asked him about LeVar Ball because I guess LeVar won, wanted to challenge MJ. He said, he said months ago that he would beat MJ one-on-one. The greatest of all time. And it's not even close. If you actually look at it, Jordan would annihilate him. But Jordan said, it doesn't even require a response, but I would beat him one-legged. I wish he would have just stopped with it doesn't even require a response because that's, that's the truth. It doesn't require a response. And if it gets to that point, this is just all giving credence to LeVar Ball, which is what we don't need right now. It's not okay. It's not. It's, it's that simple. And if you're a parent of a player on his AAU team, I really wish you would just remove your kid. Say, we're going to go play somewhere else. I really do. But then LeVar, you know, probably would find a way to blackball the kid. That's, I don't, I don't get it. Couple other questions here. Colin asking uh, about players' pay in the NFL after Sammy Watkins and others in the NFL expressed a want to receive NBA players' pay. Could the league afford it? And which league is going to go belly up from player pay first? First off, neither league is going to go belly up because of player pay. They're not. They're going to go belly up because fans stop watching, but are we really going to stop watching football or basketball? We're not. It, it's, it's proven. And the NBA now going with sponsor patches on the jerseys, that's only going to bring them more money. And Remember this. You got to remember this with it when it comes to player pay. The NBA negotiated a CBA a couple of years ago, a collective bargaining agreement a couple of years ago that all this TV money gets kicked in for player salaries that each team can now use and that goes up continuously over the next couple of years where these guys can get more money. Number 2 from the NFL, they don't have that. They don't they don't, be, and the main part of it is because they don't have the regional TV contracts. The NFL is strictly a national uh, television deals. You don't see like Comcast Sportsnet or Nessun airing Patriot games exclusively. They're always on Fox or CBS or NBC or ESPN. Same with the Oakland Raiders or the Los Angeles Chargers or Rams. You don't see Fox Sports Bay Area. With these games, you see Fox, NBC, CBS, ESPN. So the way that the NFL could probably do this is is one of two ways. Number one, uh, well, three ways. Number one is they could just do it and, you know, they won't really suffer because they make so much money off of jersey sales and endorsements. Number two, they could do what the NBA is doing, 
in uh, the patches on jerseys and sponsorships and turning it into NASCAR. Or number three, what they could do is try to negotiate the collective bargaining agreement for the TV money and maybe do some regional TV deals. But you won't see that because the amount of money they get from fantasy or, or whatever it is or the amount of money they could get from gambling, which they always say they don't, but they want that, um, is, is where they'll make the most money. I don't think it's going to happen. But again, I don't think NFL players should be worried about how much money they are getting. With CT, and we'll touch on this in a little bit with Ryan Mayer of CBS Sports, what the player should be focused on is that total compensation package. Any kid fresh out of college, you always hear about that. Oh, make sure you know about the total compensation package because it doesn't matter how much money you're getting right now. What matters is the health benefits or the pension you could be getting after you retire. I think anybody in football, knowing now what we have over the last couple of years with concussions and CTE and all that stuff, if I could tell you that you're going to get maybe a million dollars less on your contract on average per year, yet you're going to get all of that money back, whether it be in health benefits or pension, once you retire, I think a lot of players will take that instead. Last question here. Dan uh, wants to know, what could the Orioles have wanted for Zach Britton that the Dodgers were not willing to give away? We heard a lot of trade rumors about Zach Britton, where he was going to go. If he was going to be traded, a lot of folks said maybe the Red Sox were going to try to get him as a setup man for Craig Kimbrell. Uh, negotiations were pretty high there with the Dodgers. Um, but I think what honestly happened is the fact that the Dodgers don't want to give up their top prospects. And they didn't have to. The Dodgers didn't need to go, again, they didn't need to trade anybody. They did not need to trade a single person. Or for a single person. They were fine. They were on pace for 114 wins before their trades. They had no need to go out and get anybody. But, again, I think the biggest thing was they didn't want to give up their number two prospects. They gave up some other prospects to get you Darvish, Tony Watson, and Tony Singrani. But they didn't want to give up some of their best guys. It's that simple. And the Orioles, because of Zach Britton and because of how great of a closer that he is, were going to demand some of those top two uh, prospects. That simple. But the Dodgers sat there and waited, knowing that they didn't have to give up anybody. And they didn't. They didn't give up anybody. Willie Calhoun, A.J. Alexi, Brendan Davis going to Texas for you, Darvish. They didn't want to give up Singrani. They didn't want to give up you know, their other big prospects. And there's nothing wrong with that. So that's, I think, what it was. They didn't want to give up those big names. And, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. The Dodgers did a great thing there. They really did. As always, love your guys' questions. I uh, appreciate it. Hope you guys continue doing so. Again, at Chris Heimel or at Bruce Sportsnet on Twitter. Find us on Facebook as well, Bruce Sports and Big Play Live. Want to get over to the NFL because there have been some big stories. Most recently, the New York Times article that came out about CTE where 111 players uh, interviewed and 110 of them showed signs of CTE because of their, play, of their play in the NFL. And then, of course, you had what happened with Jamal Adams. The Jets rookie safety earlier this week was asked about it, and he said uh, in no uncertain terms that he wanted he, he was okay with dying on the field or that he loves football so much that he would die on the football field. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but at the same time, CTE is a huge, huge deal, and concussions are a huge, huge deal. The problem that I have, and I brought this up at the top of the show, is how hypersensitive we get in this social media age, and a lot of people were upset about Jamal Adams, and he, of course, then went and had to issue an apology, a retraction, something... Ryan Mayer of CBS Sports joins us now. Uh, Ryan, what was it that Jamal ended up saying? What did he apologize for? And all of this, of course, with Commissioner Roger Goodell sitting right next to him. Yeah, uh, Christian, thanks for having me on the show. It was it was interesting to see the least. Obviously, um, the comments taken a little bit out of context. He issued uh, kind of a clarification, I guess, during the course of the day today, saying that you know he didn't mean anything. Uh, about CTE or need to diminish the effects that that has on uh, the friends and loved ones of players that the former players that have it and um, on and on along those lines. But it was still just a strange comment uh, to make in the first place because it's 
one that I get where he's trying to go with it. Like he's got a big passion for the game would have probably been better. But to say that you'd be perfectly fine dying on the field isn't exactly a good way to put that, especially when you have the commissioner next to you who then has to go into scramble PR saving mode and try and spin it in a way that uh, doesn't make the league look as dangerous as well. We all know it to be at this point. Uh, We know that there are significant issues with being consistently hit over and over in various different ways in football. It's not even the huge hits necessarily. It's the sub-concussive ones that happen on a play-by-play basis to offensive linemen, defensive linemen, running backs when they lower their head. When, When that kind of stuff is swirling around the NFL at all times, and we all are fairly well informed on it at this point, it's strange to make the comment that you'd be willing to die on the field. Now, that said, there are probably other players that feel the same because they football is their life. Football has given them the opportunity to be where they are right now. It's It's just it's such a strange way to express that passion to me. Uh, that it's it's very odd probably not the way that Jamal Adams should have worded that but Ryan let me flip this around a little bit because I've heard this argument uh as well if Roger Goodell really cared that much to to go into PR scramble mode wouldn't he also be fighting for the health benefits of these players I mean what more can he actually do well (laughs) that's the interesting part because he can only do so much, right? Because he's the public figurehead for the owners. The owners are really the ones that have the power to make the changes within the league. Roger Goodell can do a certain amount as uh, agreed upon within the CBA, but largely that has come to player discipline at this point in time. A lot of his power has come to him in that respect. Uh, The owners give him the power to decide where they want to focus their funds in terms of the league funds um, going forward and, and He's, they're all kind of his boss. So in a sense, he, he's really just kind of going with what they're telling him to do. Now, Goodell, Goodell is certainly uh, been portrayed as villainous, and a lot of his comments haven't exactly helped that over the years, and he's not exactly a, a sort of softy type to the press and fans and not exactly a sympathetic figure. So, you know, it's it's interesting with with Goodell because, you know, he comes back with the, well, players on average live five years longer than you do. Okay, well, actuality, I think I was seeing something uh, later in the day yesterday, the study that he was quoting, it wasn't five years. It was more like 2.8 years. And just because somebody is living longer doesn't necessarily point to better quality of life. You you could have a player that's living to age 77 with symptoms of CTE, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, he's bright and happy and running around and doing things that a normal person would be able to do. And to a certain extent, wouldn't you expect NFL players and professional athletes in general who generally live healthier lives, they're exercising more, they have better diets than the general population to be healthier and live longer than the rest of the general population. So the point that he made there at the press conference was a strange one to me because that's that's not what we're questioning. We're talking about head trauma and its and its effect on players. We're not talking about the lifespan overall. We're we're talking about a serious issue that the league knows and has been proven to be wrong on, and yet here we are with, well, actually, kind of comments from the commissioner. It was, it was just weird. The, the league certainly says they're doing more about it, but um, over the past couple of years, we've seen various stories coming out about them severing partnerships or ending partnerships with different um, brain trauma studies and, and, concussion, and concussion studies, so... You know, how much is being done, I I can't really tell you because I'm not in the NFL offices on a day-to-day basis, but it certainly doesn't seem like there's a ton done outside of just surface-level PR um, for these serious issues that players are facing from playing the game. 
He's Ryan Mayer, CBS Local Sports. And let's transition a little bit here, uh, but kind of compounding on Roger Goodell's statements that seem a little contradictory, um, saying that the that Colin Kaepernick is not being blackballed by the NFL. And then you have this situation with the Ravens where Ryan Mallett is a backup, Joe Flacco's injury, Colin is certainly better than just about every uh, quarterback, uh, backup quarterback, if not most starters as well, yet he's not even being brought in to work out. And Steve Biscotti, the owner, is essentially polling fans to find out if they should bring him. That, to me, screams that he's being blackballed. Yeah, it, you know, the biggest thing with the Kaepernick situation that, that bothers me most is since when have owners actually cared about what the fans think? Granted, there are times where they'll, you know, they'll put on a face and say, hey, tell, uh, tell us what you think about these new ticket prices. It doesn't matter. They're going to raise them anyway. Personal seat licenses, do fans like those? Hell no, but doesn't matter. Every NFL stadium in the country almost at this point has them. So why now are you going to the fans and saying, hey, by the way, should we sign this person? You've never consulted fans on decisions before, rightfully, because a lot of times they're not football people that are thinking rationally. They're thinking with their heart. They're thinking and reacting from their gut. When it comes to Colin Kaepernick, he's better by far, in my opinion, than every backup in the league. And I'd say he's better probably than the bottom four, five, six, seven, maybe as high as 10 starters in the league as well. I mean, you can't sit there and tell me that whatever the Jets situation that they have going on right here in New York right now is wouldn't be better with Colin Kaepernick. You, you, you flat can't tell me that. So th- this has gotten to the point now where it's beyond ridiculous. And earlier today, Diana Rossini from ESPN is reporting that both Ozzie Newsom and John Harbaugh want to bring in Kaepernick, but the owner in Steve Bashotti has vetoed that for now, while all at the same time having a strange press conference in which he asks for people to pray for us, quote-unquote, as if, you know, everybody in the locker room ha- is going through some sort of ordeal. No, you're deciding whether or not to sign a quarterback. Now, is Kaepernick a controversial figure to some people? Absolutely. Do a lot of people disagree with what uh, with him kneeling during the National Anthem last year? Sure. Do a lot of people agree with it? Yeah. The people that are going to voice their opinions, though, to Bashadi, and you know this as well as I do, Christian, are the people that are the most upset. Very rarely do you get people that actually agree with you to vehemently agree with you and and send in letters and petitions and everything else. It's when people disagree with you that they are going to be the loudest. And that vocal minority is, at this point, going to be the ones that are in the ears of these owners telling them not to sign Catherine. The other part that just astounds me is the fact that this is with an organization that actually helped to cover up the Ray Rice elevator story. Right, right. It's, you know, you're you're... You're absolutely right on that point. You're talking about the same franchise that uh, we're looking at three, four years ago now, the entire Ray Rice situation. And during that situation, Steve Bashotti came out and defended Ray Rice. I don't, was almost defiant of the video of every other piece of evidence that came out against Rice and was defending him throughout the entire ordeal until eventually coming back from that and suspending him and then eventually letting him go. To me, now you're talking about a guy in in Kaepernick that has done nothing wrong, like legally has done nothing wrong other than use his American right to free speech. And yet here we are. Let's transition a little bit away from this and talk about some comments made by Odell Beckham Jr., the New York Giants wide receiver, one of, if not the best receivers in the game. Uh, He wants to be paid not only as the best receiver, but as the best player in the game. Does he have anything to really back up his claim to be paid as the best guy in the NFL? Odell Beckham Jr. is a fantastic player. He's a great wide receiver. He's a game-breaking wide receiver. But by no stretch of the imagination is does he deserve to be paid as the best player in the NFL? I, 
I'm all for athletes going and trying to get as much money as they possibly can because their careers are shorter than everyday people's careers. You and I may work a job a year. These guys have eight to ten if they're lucky on average, like three to four. So I'm all for him trying to get as much money as possible, but there is no way that you convince me, no statistics you can put in front of me that are going to lead me to the conclusion that he should be the top paid player in the NFL. It's just, it's, it's not the case. The wide receiver position is so much more fungible than say a quarterback in the NFL or a left tackle in the NFL who's protecting your biggest investment in the quarterback. So no, I can't, I can't get on board with that. Can I get on board with him being the highest paid wide receiver in the NFL? Absolutely. I can't get on board with him being paid higher than the Andrew Lux, the David Carrs, the Russell Wilsons, Tom Brady's of the world. What about the argument in general that players in the NFL should be paid more as a whole? I mean, Sammy Watkins has come out and said that. Other players have said that, uh, especially with the contracts that NBA guys get. What about maybe paying everybody in the NFL a little bit more? Well, here's the NFL, and the biggest thing is they have more players on the roster than any of the other leagues, and in fact, close to more players on the roster than the other three professional sports leagues combined. You have 53 guys on an NFL roster that you're splitting up the profits with. Now, obviously, should they get a larger percentage of the league-wide revenue than the current, whatever it is, 47.5%, 48%, I think, right now within the CBA? Absolutely. Is the players' union doing a bad uh, or a disservice to their players by not getting more of that revenue? I guess you could say so, but I think uh, the most interesting points that were made recently, and I'm not going to try and fully uh, summarize them because it's just such a, a smart piece that people should go read it, is Dominique Foxworth. Um, former NFL player, former leader of the NFLPA, and also uh, was previously part of the NBA Basketball Players Association as well, wrote a piece on the undefeated about why the unions in each sports league need to decertify uh, as a union and the benefits and also risks that that would bring them. And it would, um, through that process, to quickly summarize it, it would give an opportunity for the for the elimination of max contracts of salary caps of that sort of things and kind of create more of a free market situation uh, where players would be able to go out and get paid more now to the nfl point overall yeah the i think the biggest concern that i have isn't necessarily getting paid more it's getting paid guaranteed fully on the contract. Now, they do have a higher injury rate than the other three sports leagues because of the nature of the game, but because of that, you would also think that providing the players with more financial security in the way of guarantees would be better um, to the overall health and mindset of these players in general. That way, they're not playing hurt. They're willing to take a seat and or willing to call out the fact that, hey, you know what, I got a little banged up, my my head's ringing a little bit after that last play, I can't go back in. They would feel more secure in that if they know that they're getting paid. They don't. These contracts that come out with all these big numbers, you as, you as well as I know that we have to sit there and wait for, okay, what's the guaranteed part of that contract before we can actually comment on it? Because most of the time it's less than half the full value, maybe 60%, maybe on the high end, 75, 70% for some of these quarterbacks is guaranteed. That's about it. You, the, the saying that you can be cut at any time in the NFL and teams can walk away from you is more true there than it is in any of these other sports where these guys, the contracts that you see, they're getting that money. So, yeah, the NFL players should be paid more as part of the revenue, but also in that sense, also should be getting guaranteed contracts too. Ryan Mayer, CBS Local Sports. I appreciate the time, my man. Great stuff. And uh, we look forward to the actual start of football season here in a couple weeks. For sure, man. Again, thanks for having me on and really enjoy the podcast. Appreciate it. 
Great stuff there with Ryan from uh, CBS Local Sports. Again, uh, you know, Dominique Foxworth has a, a great article on the undefeated.com, uh, which it's kind of interesting. I, I don't think any player would ever vote to abolish the union, but I, I do believe that um, you know there's some points in there that are brought up that are that are valid and, and would help. I mean, remember a lot of the reasons why some of these guys get these max contracts is because of player bargained uh, you know agreements and, and you know the players who are never going to get those max deals. Um, are voting to allow those things to happen while the players who will never know how low the salaries could get are voting for those to happen. So it's kind of an interesting argument, um, you know, for between player unions and NFL and NBA. But again, uh, there are a couple of things that I don't think would ever happen. One of them I think would probably end up being uh, that, you know, the, you know, disevaluation or disillusion and dissolving of the player unions in, in any of those sports. But uh, mainly because they're all owner-driven. They are. The owners are the ones who are getting the money. So that's the biggest question. So, And the biggest problem, I think, when it comes down to that. It's been a fun show. I do want to touch on one thing real quick uh, before we do close up shop again. I mentioned at the top of the show uh, the Colin Kaepernick story, and we touched on it with Ryan. Um, I-, I wasn't in the camp that he was being blackballed uh, for a while, and, and now after the reports um, that – Aaron Murray is being worked out instead of Kaepernick in Baltimore. Um, I, I, I'm kind of starting to believe that. I think Baltimore will be a perfect situation for him for a number of reasons. Number one, the system actually works. I, I, I touched on this last week. There are very few places where the system um, fits Colin Kaepernick's playing style or Colin's style specifically fits a system. He wouldn't do well in a place like um, New York with the Giants. He wouldn't do great in a place like... Um, L.A. with the Chargers or Kansas City with the Chiefs. Um, but I, I do think places like Buffalo, the Jets, maybe where they still don't know what type of system they're going to run. Um, maybe even Washington a little bit. If, if RG3 worked out well in that system and Kirk Cousins even a little bit, I think Colin could work there. But um, you know they've made their decision with Cousins. Baltimore is a place that I think fits well for him. And I think Baltimore is a place that, that needs him. Um, aside from the football stuff, and this is where – a, a, it's going to take a real, tremendously forward-thinking franchise to really sign Kaepernick. It's going to take someone like uh, a Branch Rickey or or someone like the Roonies um, in Pittsburgh. It's going to take people like that to sign Colin Kaepernick because this is a player who took a stand, his American right, a stand to try to... V- speak up and give a voice to those who don't have one and to raise awareness for social injustice in the country, which if you're are blind to that, if you don't believe there's social injustice, I, I pity you because you need to understand that the biggest thing that we have. And I said this last week on the show, it is not live and let live. It is live and help live. If you can allow others to have a better life based on the things that you do, whether you have a great life or not, that's the main goal is for you to help others. That is what at the center of the centerpiece of being a human being is being human. That it's that simple. And people need to learn that and understand that. And Colin Kaepernick is one of those enlightened ones. Again, I disagreed with his protest, but I respected his right to do it. I I disagree with how he went and did it. I understand why he did it. And the best part about Colin Kaepernick is that not only has he continued his efforts he was one of those guys who didn't just protest and put a face to it. He's one of those people who just actually did something about it. Kaepernick7.com is his website in case you don't know. And, and Colin has a number of things. The one that I love is the Know Your Rights Camp. Know Your Rights, and this is from his website. Know Your Rights Camp is a free campaign for youth fully funded by Colin Kaepernick to raise awareness on higher education, self-empowerment, and instruction to properly interact with law enforcement in various scenarios. It's not just the issues that we have between you know, civilians and law enforcement. It's not just that. It's education, self-empowerment, teaching people and helping people better themselves for the long term, starting with the kids. And there are very few cities in this country that need it more than Baltimore. Colin would be a tremendous asset, not just to the Ravens, but to the city of Baltimore. Tremendous to help out in that city with those youth. And I know this because I went to high school there just outside of Baltimore. I know that. I know how rough the area is and how tough it can be. Cities like Detroit, like Chicago, every major city has those areas. 
Colin Kaepernick would be perfect. Perfect for Baltimore. Not just the football team, the city itself. And it's a shame that Steve Biscotti is being this blind to it. It's, it's embarrassing. It really it bothers me tremendously. And I am now fully 100% of the opinion that Colin Kaepernick is being blackballed by the NFL. The only thing that he wouldn't be is if Colin comes out and says, I don't want to play professional football anymore. That's the only thing that could make me think differently. The only thing. But until I hear from him that he doesn't want to play anymore, the fact that he's not even being tried out by the Ravens bothers me tremendously. Because that would be a perfect fit from him. Especially when it's a franchise that, again, as mentioned with Ryan, helped the NFL cover up the Ray Rice elevator video. And then actively backed him. What you are telling the youth in America, in Baltimore, your players and your fans, by asking them by to pray for us in this decision of whether or not to bring Kaepernick in, what you are indirectly telling them is that it is okay to drunkenly assault a woman, but it is not okay to take a knee and take a stand for what you truly, firmly believe in and help others. That's what Steve Biscotti is saying. And that's embarrassing. It really is. I want to thank my guests here this week, Chris Smith of MassLive.com, as well as Ryan Mayer, CBS Local Sports. I want to thank you guys, the fans as well, for, and the listeners for listening, as well as giving us your questions. You can do that each and every week, once again, at Chris Heimel on Twitter or at Bruce Sportsnet. Don't forget to find us on Facebook as well, Bruce Sports and Big Play Live. It's been a fun week. I hope everybody enjoys it this weekend. Uh, next week, looking forward to a lot more conversation about the NFL, maybe even some college football as we get into that a little bit also here coming up in just a little bit. And we're getting closer and closer to the mega fight of Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. We'll probably dive into that a lot more next week as well. Until then, I'm Christian Iowa. I'll see you next time on Press Row.